the West should be scared of blaspheming. We want to achieve that goal. So basically, it reflects the very essence of blasphemy. It's not just about offended sensibilities. It's not about protecting certain ideas. It's also about intimidating others who think differently. You're listening to episode 62 of the National Secular Society podcast, produced by Emma Park. In October this year, the MP David Amos was killed in his constituency surgery by a 25-year-old man. The case is still ongoing, but according to reports in the press, the attack is understood to have been motivated by Islamist ideology. The media and political establishment have, however, been chary of going into these ideological motivations. On the other hand, as also reported in the media, abuse directed against Muslims has increased since the murder of Amos and after the car bomb detonated outside Liverpool Women's Hospital in November. In the latter case, the suspect's motivations are still unknown. At the end of November, the Centre for Media Monitoring, a project of the Muslim Council of Britain, released a report on the coverage of both Muslims and Islam in the British media. This report was ostensibly designed to improve journalistic standards by identifying cases of bias or misrepresentation. But critics have argued that the real purpose of the report is to seize control of the discourse on Islam and Muslims in Britain and to restrict free speech. November itself was Islamophobia Awareness Month, a topic which was debated in the House of Commons on the 24th. The Labour MP Afzal Khan, who purported to speak on behalf of 2.7 million British Muslims, focused on the claim that Islamophobia was still rampant in Britain. During the debate, the government was pressed by politicians on the left as to why it had yet to adopt the definition of Islamophobia as a form of racism against Muslims. This definition is advocated by the All-Party Parliamentary Group on British Muslims and by the Muslim Council of Britain. As explained by the Conservative MP Steve Baker, the government prefers the term anti-Muslim hatred because, as he said, racism refers to race, not religion. The National Secular Society also supports the use of this term for a different reason, because it makes a distinction between Muslims and Islam, while Islamophobia muddies the waters. Prejudice against Muslims is, of course, as bad as such prejudice would be against any other people on the grounds of their religion or culture. And there is no doubt that anti-Muslim hatred is still a real problem in Britain. But this does not mean that Islam, any more than any other ideology, should be above criticism. Like many Western countries, Britain is struggling as it tries to preserve secular values amid threats on all sides. Secular values, of course, include such things as human rights, democracy, equality before the law, individual liberty, and vitally, freedom of thought and speech. If these values are to be preserved and made available to everyone, including to people of minority religions and cultures, then it is vital that we in Britain should be able to discuss difficult issues openly and without fear. With these considerations in mind, my guest today is someone who's able to speak authoritatively about the conflict between secular values and some interpretations of Islam. Kunwar Khuldun Shahid is a journalist and the Pakistan correspondent for The Diplomat, an online magazine covering the Asia-Pacific region. He's also written for many other publications, including The Guardian, The Independent, The New Statesman, The Spectator and Le Monde. Kunwar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, you're in Pakistan at the moment. Whereabouts are you and what's it like out there at the moment? Um, I'm based out of Lahore, uh, which is, as things stand, the world's most uh, polluted city. So I have, I have a cold and my apologies if, I, if that reflects in the voice as well. Uh, other than that, it's, 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 it's all right. Let's talk a bit about your background in terms of your philosophical or other beliefs. Were you raised as a Muslim and 
are you still one? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a tough question to answer going to an array of reasons. Um, first of all, I find it can be difficult to talk about my own self, uh, but also where I live, it's not that easy to um, express one's uh, beliefs or rather lack thereof. I was born in a Muslim family, you know, growing up, went through all the customs, the, the traditions uh, that an average Muslim household goes through in Pakistan. Um, however, uh, in my personal beliefs, I, for a long time, actually, you know, I think when I was 12, 13, I've personally, I've become very anti-theistic in my views of religion, uh, owing to a wide array of reasons, because I personally believe that theology or religious ideology causes more harm than good. For many, it might be a simplistic view of religion itself. You know, if you look at it more broadly, any any ideology that is more invested in an in intangible afterlife and at best, uh, you know, renders this world a pit stop or, you know, or, or an examination hall for the afterlife, obviously does not have the best interest of this um, world at heart. And then, of course, you have the argument for of, uh, proof of evidence of rationality. There are a lot that, that can be used. While at the same time, uh, I, I want to emphasize that Politically, I wholeheartedly endorse absolute freedom of belief, absolute freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, which means that no matter what my personal views on religion are, all ideas, including religious ideas, including anti-religious ideas, absolutely every idea should find space in the public discourse, equal opportunity space, um, no ideas, as, as we often define secularism, no ideas should be privileged over others, no ideas, uh, not by the state, if there are other reasons why some people are there to other ideas more than others, uh, that, that, should, uh, that should be obviously allowed, uh, but the state shouldn't interfere with, with anyone's individual beliefs is, is, is what I believe in, whether that's against religion or whether that's for religion. And that's actually something we'll be getting back to, this idea of, of what the state can and can't do, um, and not just the state, also powerful um, organisations. Now, you've written several articles for the National Secular Society, The Spectator and elsewhere, about issues relating to Islam and blasphemy laws in particular, both in Pakistan, the wider Muslim countries around the world, um, and in the UK. So first of all, let's start with the sort of the, the theory or the ideas behind this. What, what is usually meant when people talk about um, political Islam and, and how does that differ from Islam as a religion? I think uh, when you say political Islam, this is, and this is my, my personal view, it's, it's almost like, you, you know, you, you use certain words and you say, say them twice but because they mean different things in, in different languages. For example, you say naan bread in Britain or chai tea, although chai also means tea and um, naan also means bread. So when you say political Islam, it's it's sort of like you're doubling down on the political aspect of Islam because Islam intrinsically is, is a political ideology. However, uh, one can understand, and I personally have endorsed this as well, there, there's a need to separate Islam uh, as an ideology, as a belief system, or even as a cultural experience or as a lived experience, there's a need to separate that from Muslim communities or members of the Muslim community. You know, you asked me whether or not I still am a Muslim. I, despite my my views on religion, despite my views on Islam, I I would like to separate Islam from the Muslim identity because when you say, for example, if I say I'm no longer a Muslim because I don't believe in Islam, you're basically endorsing the Islamist argument that the entirety of the Muslim identity is based on Islam. So once you remove that, that is one is no longer a Muslim. I personally don't endorse that. This is not to say that I I do not. Uh, uh, 
you know, celebrate and appreciate what vocal ex-Muslims are doing. Uh, it's, it, it's incredibly uh, brave to come out as an ex-Muslim, not just uh, in the Muslim majority country. In fact, you can't do it over here. You can't use that label publicly in most uh, Muslim majority countries, but even in, in the UK, even in, in the US. Uh, so th- it's absolutely... Uh, incredibly brave of them to do that but i i still believe that there is a lot more to muslim identity than mere belief so you're you're saying it's possible to be a cultural muslim even if you don't believe in islamic sort of theology just as say it's possible to be culturally jewish without believing um in in any sort of god jewish god or culturally christian without believing in a christian god Absolutely, not just uh, not you know when you say not believing or partially believing because no two Muslims, no two Jews, no two Christians, even if they're believing and practicing, would agree, uh, you know, on every single point of, of the theology of their religion. And what, what you're saying is that some of the those who are sort of Islamists, really strongly political in in their use of Islamic ideology, want to say um, is that if you don't subscribe to all the particular doctrines, then you don't count as a true Muslim. Is that what some people are trying to argue? Exactly, exactly. And this is this is true. And you have so many different sects in, in, in Islam now. And uh, when, you, when you listen to the, the people who represent those sects, and you, they're basically arguing that if you don't believe in so and so and so, uh, you're not a Muslim. So basically, endorsing a Muslim identity without any link to the, 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 the belief system or religion in Islam itself is more more a case of uh, rebelling against that, that very notion uh, that Islam equals Muslim. And that's, that's not just for, for any individual's own identity, not for, uh, uh, just not for any particular uh, political uh, reform. It's basically to render a dangerous idea redundant. That's how I see it. Mm. Well, let, uh, talking of dangerous ideas, let's talk about blasphemy laws in Islamic countries. So in Pakistan and in about 11 or so other countries, blasphemy against Islam, but not against other religions, um, still carries the death penalty. So first of all, who decides what counts as blasphemy against Islam for the purpose of, of the laws of these countries? I mean, you mentioned blasphemy, and we'd be having this discussion uh, at a time that, you know, over the past week alone, uh, just just to give you a few examples of the top of my head, um, northern Syria banned certain textbooks because they deemed them blasphemous over the depiction of uh, Islam's prophet Muhammad. Uh, then there is an, a verdict from the Indonesian court that gave the Indonesian government complete right to to ban whatever they see on the internet that they deem inappropriate, which is another way of uh, implementing a digital blasphemy law. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, a man was arrested because of something he posted on Twitter. Uh, in Egypt. A prominent lawyer and thinker, Ahmad Abdul Maharam, has been sentenced five years in prison because of something he said about the Islamic month of uh, Ramadan. And you mentioned Pakistan. In Pakistan, over the past four days alone, you had a case of a police station being burnt uh, by a mob of thousands because the police refused to hand over uh, a, a, a blasphemy suspect. And another four pe- persons were uh, charged with blasphemy because simply because they asked the local mosque to make a funeral announcement. For a Christian. Now, these are just <laughs> incidents from the past week. It's not a coincidence, of course, because we could be talking any, any date of any month of any year, and the odds are that a blasphemy case somewhere in the Muslim world would at most be a couple of days away from our conversation. That's how frequent these cases are. And yet, they don't seem to make the headlines. So, you talk about blasphemy, 
And your question was, who, who gets to decide that? In countries like Pakistan, it's absolutely the mob that gets to decide that. It's the mob that's lynching people. It's the mob that uh, um, that's as you know, burning localities, burning police stations. They're desecrating places of worship. Even mosques can be desecrated if they belong to the wrong sect. So in Pakistan, it's 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 the mobs that decide that they're facilitated by the state. Of course, we can go on and on and on about how the state is facilitating them. Uh, in countries like Saudi Arabia and countries like Iran, it's codified. In Pakistan, it's codified as well. But the difference between Saudi Arabia and Pakistan or Iran, Pakistan, for example, is that Pakistan simultaneously aspires to be a democratic republic. So what happens is that it's not judicially executing anyone for blasphemy, uh, which is allowing mobs to take matters into their own hands, something they don't have to do with, uh, in Saudi Arabia and Iran because the state is executing people over there anyway. This is, of course, not to endorse Saudi Arabia or Iran. It's just that there's a diverse array of people being persecuted in a diverse array of ways uh, over a crime that does not have any victims. So who gets to decide what's blasphemous? That question itself is the answer to should we have uh, blasphemy laws or not. It's it's you when it's an intangible crime, there is no victim. Uh, you're basically saying that if someone is offended and you're attaching a monstrous and that I don't have any words in any language to describe the, the level of punishment that death is for offended uh, sentiments or, or even uh, you know years in prison, for example, for offended sentiments. Yeah, it's it's a it's a you're right, as as you say, it's a victimless crime because who are you offending? Well, um you're you're sitting against um, a god who may or may not exist, according to someone's I- idea of what that god might or might not be offended by. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. And and in in Pakistan, you say you talked about um, the mob. Well, so I mean, how does it come about that they they get so angry and they they go out and they they burn a mosque or um, attack people? How did how did these particular incidents sort of build up? How do they snowball? It could start with something as as trivial as a Christian woman drinking water from a glass that belonged to a Muslim person. That's that's the, that that's what happened to Asya Bibi, who made uh, who made headlines because she was accused of blasphemy over over a conversation. Uh, she was accused of blasphemy initially for again from drinking water, you know, because of uh, drinking water from the wrong glass. And then the local Islamic cleric added unsubstantiated claims that she said this about that and she said that. None of that was uh, um, uh, substantiated and it was actually proven later on that that was half of it was made up. So it could just start with something as trivial as that. Um, but it could also be Something that's happening in France, for example, as bizarre as it sounds, for example, if Charlie Hebdo, you know, they publish cartoons depicting uh, uh, Muhammad, then Islamist mobs in, in Pakistan would take it upon themselves to burn down Pakistani property because the Pakistani state will not expel the French ambassador. That's that's how things happen uh, in, in Pakistan. Now, basically, why is that happening? That is happening because you're basically, you've codified the idea that offending Islam merits death. So when you're doing that and yet nobody's killing anyone, then the mob says, maybe maybe we should be more expressive in our outrage. Maybe that will make a difference. Quite often it's a personal dispute. If it's a dispute between a Muslim and someone who's not a Muslim or, or the wrong kind of Muslim, quote unquote, uh, they would use their, uh, just use the blasphemy card and accuse anyone of any anything. Um, that's what happens quite frequently in Pakistan. So, so it's about power, really. Who who has the power to, um, or they can they can use blasphemy as a weapon to attack people they don't like. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's 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 the 
you know, it's the state. I mean, in Pakistan's case, of course, each each Muslim state has its own uh, history with blasphemy, its own its own path uh, towards endorsing these laws. But in Pakistan, it's, it's the state that has handed over the the, the blasphemy law to the mobs. Uh, like I said, because it, it it's it's confused between what it wants and what it uh, aspires to be and what it it, it can't be. Um, have you personally ever been affected by the blasphemy laws, or are you afraid that you might be? I was afraid a few minutes ago when I was telling you what I believed in. So that's that's uh, um, that's uh, that's just how it is. I mean, I don't. Personally, as far as I'm concerned, I don't want to tell you another story of victimhood. I think we, we, we have far too many of those in the global discourse today. There's far too many people, uh, you know, participating in who gets to be a bigger victim. So my my thoughts and my ideas are not based on uh, how how big a threat certain ideas pose to it. And it's not it's not a it's not an SOS call. It's not it's not a call to rescue dissenters or rescue free thinkers. It's basically a, a reality check when it comes to what certain ideas that are being endorsed in other parts of the world and the impact they have in our part of the world. So you, you wrote earlier this year um, about um, the way that Imran Khan, the current prime minister of Pakistan, would like to see um, Islamic blasphemy laws imposed on all countries around the world, including in the West. And, and I, as far as I understand, other um, there are some other Muslim leaders um, who would be sympathetic to that view. What, what, what would be the aims of doing this, of imposing Islamic blasphemy laws everywhere? The aim of imposing Islamic blasphemy laws everywhere is, is basically pandering to the domestic Islamist vote bank. Imran Khan, uh, despite his many flaws and many, many, you know, wide gamut of idiocies, is, is fully aware that the West is not going to sentence people for death over blasphemy. Not anymore. They did that 500 years ago. Probably not going to happen anytime soon over there. Uh, so he knows that fully well. But what he's basically doing is uh, uh, when the mob, and when, you know, when we say the mob, in Pakistan, without getting too much into Pakistani politics, in, in, in Pakistan, the mob is designated by the Tariq al-Abek Pakistan today. Now, the Tariq al-Abek Pakistan is also a political party. That was the third most popular uh, party in 2018, in, in the elections of 2018. So he's technically that party, which was designated a terror group earlier this year and now is back to being a political party. Uh, he, Imran Khan wants to challenge those uh, groups as well because he doesn't want to lose out to them because one never knows when a radical movement transforms into a political movement and it becomes an electoral threat. Of course, Imran Khan individually, and then not just Imran Khan, most of the proponents of Islamism in the, in, the, in the Muslim majority countries, they personally adhere to the idea that blasphemy should not be allowed, should be censored. Some might even believe that they should be harshly penalized. But to say something like we want the same blasphemy laws in the West, and he, he said, said it explicitly, I, and I, I think I quoted him in the in the article as well. He said that people in the West should be scared of blaspheming. We want to achieve that goal. So basically, it reflects the very essence of blasphemy. It's not just about offended sense sensibilities. It's not about protecting certain ideas. It's also about intimidating others who think differently. Mm. And and of course, he's only interested in blasphemy against um, Islam. But of course, you might then say, well, um, should we have laws which prevent blasphemy against any religion and where would that lead to of course of course just to just to give you an example i keep mentioning france because in pakistan over the past year or so because of the uh, republication of charlie hebdo's cartoons the, what is happening is france is getting uh, all all, uh, all the more coverage so for example uh, not just pakistan there are so many countries and so many in, in the uk even who would call 
um, you know, France Islamophobic for, for a wide array of reasons. And when Imran Khan says that, he says France is Islamophobic. What he doesn't know that between, you know, in 1971, all of France had 33 mosques. Today in France, there are over 2,500 mosques. While at the same time, Pakistan had over 400 Hindu temples at, in 1947 when the country was carved out of British India. And today, 95% of them have been demolished. There are less than 20 temples, functioning temples in Pakistan, and not a single new temple has been constructed, Hindu temple has been constructed in the country over the past 74 years. So how can a country with such, uh, such uh, quote-unquote uh, religious freedom have any right to question anything happening anywhere in the world? It's because not based on any consistent idea. It's simply based on opportunism. It's based on hypocrisy. And that sells, unfortunately, that still sells uh, in countries like Pakistan. And, and presumably in, in some other Muslim-majority countries as well. In, in, in most, unfortunately, in most Muslim-majority countries. You mentioned 12 countries that, that uh, have the death penalty for criticizing Islam. There are 20 others that similarly elevate Islam above other religions that have harsher penalties, prison sentences, like we mentioned Egypt. So 32 countries out of 49, that's almost two-thirds of, uh, of the Muslim-majority countries that elevate Islam above other religions. So that's, that's how prevalent it is. Well, let's move now to, to thinking about, um, you, you mentioned France, but thinking about Europe and the UK. How much influence would you say that political Islam has over the public discourse about Islam in UK and in the rest of Europe? I think uh, sometimes, sometimes we, we, you know, uh, when we listen to Muslim representatives in, in, in the UK and in, in other countries in the US, when you listen to them, you almost feel it's the same Islamist parties from countries like ours who are now representing or claiming to represent, uh, you know, Muslims or Muslim minorities in the West, for example. I mean, for example, the Muslim Council of Britain. Now, the things that they, they seem to be outraged over, such as cartoons, such as whether or not uh, their first female representative should be asked questions that you, you could ask any other, any other uh, uh, woman from any other religion and would, wouldn't be deemed phobic. So you have these groups uh, who are uh, upholding the Islamist line, endorsing the Islamist values, and aren't outraged by something like, for example, people being uh, killed in the name of Islam, uh, police stations being uh, burned over blasphemy, they would never explicitly condemn that. They would never explicitly condemn what's what's uh, uh, what's happening in, in, in Muslim-majority countries. Con I've often seen them conveniently distance themselves uh, from what is that because they, they think that there's none of their business. But that's my problem with what's happening in the West right now. If Muslim minorities are claiming to be a whole, as in as in if Muslim Council of Britain claims to represent all of Muslims in Britain, then surely Muslims from other parts of the world, and especially Muslim majority countries, should also fall into their argument and they should also have some responsibility to talk about them. Individual Muslims being forced to ask or represent what's happening in the Muslim world? Absolutely not. But groups that claim to represent all Muslims and then endorse those very ideas that are actually um, uh, generating and propagating uh, volatility in Muslim-majority countries, uh, they should also be held accountable for, for things they don't speak up about. Would you say that, um, you, I mean, you've, I believe from talking to you before we started this podcast, you have um, friends and, and relatives in the UK. I mean, how diverse is the Muslim population of Britain in terms of its beliefs and political affiliations? 
I'm fortunate enough to know, know a wide, wide array of British Muslims, people from my own extended family. So many of them um, have made home in Britain now. Uh, they range from people who are like me, who don't believe in uh, Islamic th- uh, theology, to people who are almost uh, as Islamist as, as, as any, any uh, Islamist uh, group in, 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 in Pakistan. So there's a wide range of Muslims. But unfortunately, what I see is that when you, t- when you look at Muslim representatives and you, you, you pose the, the, the difficult questions to them, more often than not, they have the same regressive idea. So while the population, Muslim population is diverse, those representing, whether that's in Britain, whether that's in the US, uh, whether that's in other Western European countries, more often than not, uh, they have a very uh, monolithic uh, take on what Muslims feel and what Muslims are and how, what or offends Muslims. And, and these um, these leaders, uh, sort of self-proclaimed leaders, do they have close connections with sort of the, the more fundamentalist ideology of, of Islam in other, in other countries, such as, I don't know, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran? Of course, of course. Uh, so much of uh, uh, what, what we now call uh, political Islam or Islamism or, or a more uh, uh, restrictive brand of Islam is, is, has been funded by Saudi Arabia, has been funded by Qatar, has been, uh, you know, uh, in the Sunni Sunni half of the Muslim world, it's, 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 it's the Gulf states, it's the Sunni Gulf states who are doing that. And in the Shia half, uh, you have uh, Iran that wants to perpetuate its version of Shia Islamism. And Pakistan, for example, why, since I come from Pakistan, there are so many groups that are exercising violence, not just not just uh, endorsing political uh, Islam, they're exercising violence in Pakistan, but they have offices in, in Britain. That's that's how it is right now. Uh, I could name a few organizations. I don't know if I, if I, I can, but uh, they're there in, in Britain and they're, they're uh, endorsing religious apartheid. They're endorsing uh, um, murders for blasphemy uh, from mosques in the UK. And when you talk about that, those representing Muslims would, would highlight that that somehow... Uh, tarnishing the entire Muslim community with the same regressive brush, brush while they don't want to, perhaps don't want to look inwards themselves. So there are certainly links among some parts of, of yeah, the, the, say the Muslim leaders or the more fundamentalist Muslims with these these um, very um, regressive ideas, but that certainly doesn't represent all Muslims. So um, and yet they might get accidentally tarnished by by the same. Um, bad reputation just because there's there's not enough ability, say, in, in the media or in public discourse in somewhere like the UK to make distinctions between different ideas, different attitudes among different Muslims. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. For example, if we're talking about the effects of this influence of Islamist sort of fundamentalism, as you know, we've just had two terrorist attacks in Britain within a month, one on the 15th of October, which was the murder of the MP David Amos, and then on the 14th of November, which was the bomb set off outside the Liverpool Women's Hospital. Now, the suspect in the David Amos case is being charged by the Crown Prosecution Service with murder with religious and ideological motivations. It has not yet been established what the motivations were of the perpetrator of the bombing. The suspect, whose real name is thought to be Ahmed al-Swilmin, is believed to have converted from Islam to Christianity after he moved the UK from the Middle East a few years ago. However, it was recently reported by the Times that investigators believe he may perhaps have reverted to Islam before the attack. Although, again, these details are still under investigation. In your view, I mean, is, is this the sort of thing that, that is likely to happen as long as these um, I mean, are these fundamentalist ideologies out there, are they being made available to um, communicate it to some Muslims in the UK? Absolutely. We talk about so many of, of uh, 
the radical Islamist attacks, jihadist attacks in the West, and how they have had operational links uh, to 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 the Muslim majority countries, from you know from 9/11 to London bombings. Uh, there is obviously operational link. That's that's one aspect of it, and that that needs to be addressed. But I think it's simplistic to say that oh, there are groups and uh, you know organizations based in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia, in the U, in, in Qatar, in, in in other parts of, of the world that are influencing these attacks in in in, in Britain or in other, in Germany or in other other European countries. Uh, it, the, the ideology that that uh, promotes this violence, whether that's the Liverpool bombing, whether that's any 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 jihadist attack, quite often they are homophobic attacks. Um, and they are rooted to uh, someone with a link to an organization or even working independently. I think at the heart of it all is is the jihadist ideology, and at the heart of the jihadist ideology are those aspects of of Islam uh, that are discriminatory and not just discriminatory; they endorse violence. Um, against certain communities. For example, homophobia is not exclusively an Islamic thing. And of course, one can argue that other religions have, you know, have, have been guilty of uh, gorier uh, versions of, of, you know, exhibits of, of homophobia. But in 2021, the only countries that mandate death for homosexuality are all Muslim-majority countries. So the, the ideology that, you know, someone with a certain sexuality, someone with a certain belief system, for example, um, someone who is an apostate, someone, for example, someone even belonging to another sect of Islam. You know, Asad Shah, for example, in 2016, who was an Ahmadi shopkeeper based in Glasgow. He was killed simply because of, you know, his, his Ahmadi identity. So, yes, there are operational terror links that need to be addressed, but the ideo- ideological link, the idea that someone should be killed because they believe a certain way they they have a certain lifestyle they have a certain orientation they have a certain identity the, the, the idea that they deserve to be killed is as prevalent in 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 uh, unfortunately uh, at least among the leadership of of those killing to represent muslims than it is in 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 the muslim majority countries so it is this these ideas that need to be uprooted and for that you need you need actions that are unfortunately and conveniently deemed Islamophobic by these Muslim leaders who don't want to look inwards. Well, well, let's talk about um, the term, the, the the difficult concept of, of Islamophobia, and let's talk about you know both um, from the perspective of the, um, well what the Muslim leaders are doing with it, but also um, the way that this concept has been received and treated by Western media. Because um, I think you've, you've talked about this before that it's actually the case that. I don't know, West, Western journalists, Western public authorities are not really doing dissenters or apostates any favours um, by their attitude towards um, the, this um, idea of Islamophobia. They're being um, quite deferential towards it. And indeed, you know, in this podcast, a theme has been um, that that there is a deference to religion of all kinds um, in Britain and other countries at the moment, which is sort of preventing people from acting appropriately, robustly um, against extremists. The Muslim Council, Council of Britain, for example, which which you've mentioned already, they, they wanted to have this definition of, of Islamophobia. Um, as that they define it as is Islamophobia is rooted in racism and it is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. So that is their official definition um, in in their document, which they um, recently produced on defining Islamophobia. Kunal, for you, what are, what are the difficulties with with this whole way that Islamophobia has been defined? Because it's been defined as a form of racism. What what are the problems with that? 
the, the definition that you've just read out that comes from Muslim Council of Britain, if you, if you, if you analyze it, one, one can definitely agree with what they're saying, but that's, that's not how they implement it. So, for example, if perceived Muslimness or, or someone being targeted because they're Muslim or Muslim community as a whole being um, discriminated against, if that's what you want to fight against, I think that's something we, we can all can and should um, rally behind. But then they also include satire on Islam within the same definition as well. How does satire on Islam target a Muslim community, for example? And that's the problem with the term Islamophobia. It mentions Islam. It does not mention Muslim uh, community. So if it were called Muslim phobia, we wouldn't have a problem. When you say Islamophobia, regardless of how uh, compact your definition is, regardless of you equating it with, with racism, although, of course, there are so many different races that are there to uh, Islam, but then we are all, since we also argue that the Muslim identity itself is separate from the Islamic doctrine, so you are one can, we, can, we can agree with that Muslim identity itself can be targeted. Uh, whether that's racism, whether or not, it's still like, like a cultural targeting rather yeah. than racism. Yeah, such. That, yeah. That's, that, that's a form of discrimination. That's something we can all agree with. But why call it Islamophobia? And this is this is where the problem is. Not, you, don't, you don't witness the same outrage uh, when it comes to, for example, what's happening uh, to Muslims, even in Muslim majority countries. You know, you don't you don't uh, Kashmir, for example, is not a big enough cause in in in, in the West. Maybe in Pakistan, of course, because of Pakistani politics, but. You don't talk about what's happening to Kashmiris. Uh, you don't talk as much, definitely not talk about what's happening to Uyghur Muslims in, in Xinjiang, in Chinese concentration camps. That's happening to Muslims. That, that's, that does not generate the same outrage. That does not generate allegations of Islamophobia uh, as much as uh, Charlie Hebdo's cartoons, for example. So for example, the Communist Party of China, regardless of its blanket ban targeting Islamic symbols, targeting uh, Islamic beards, banning Muslim uh, you know, uh, government officials from fasting in the month of Ramadan, we would rarely, rarely see them being called Islamophobic. But France, not just Charlie, but France as a whole Islamophobic because of uh, their interpretation of secularism, which we can disagree with. But the, 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 the duplicity here is quite evident. So it, the interest of the wider Muslim communities, and this is true whether that's the Muslim minorities. Again, when we say Muslim minorities, we, we have to refer to, you know, those... Who, who claim to represent them because they're, they're still continuing to represent them. There's not a movement that's basically asking them to step down. That nobody, whether Muslim, there's a diverse array of Muslims, but still they're okay with Muslim Council of Britain, for example, representing them. So that's also that's also a fact. So that's the problem with the term Islamophobia that it 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 uh, is quite often used to safeguard Islam from critique, and not just quite often, more often than not, it's designed to protect Islam as compared to Muslim. And, and the bigger problem, this is this is a problem that's that's that one, one can identify in the Western discourse. When you talk about the discourse in uh, the Muslim world, for example, what's happening today is that you can be accused of being an Islamophobe in a country that punishes criticism of Islam with death. So phobia, which, which literally means irrational fear, you're basically saying it's you have an irrational fear of Islam, even though you live in a country that says if you criticize Islam, you'll be sentenced to death. So that's how bizarre things have been. That's how bizarre this term is, that now you, you see people who are inspired by certain vocist, leftist uh, ideologies emanating from the West and they're co-opting them in our parts of the world and they're using terms like Islamophobia without realizing the ground realities of their own country. So this term is not only 
uh, impacting the discourse in in the West. It's definitely impacting the realities and the, the freedoms that certain people enjoy um, uh, or do not enjoy in the Muslim majority countries. You might you might almost say that perhaps in some countries. Um, is a fear of Islam is not an irrational fear. It's quite a, a rational fear if you hold certain beliefs. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's that's something we try. And, and it, it's it's unfortunate that you don't hear this discourse as frequently as you should. Defending any community's right, you know, for example, if you want to defend the Muslim community's right to adhere to any religious belief, practice any religious belief, where uh, whatever garbs they want to wear and, you know, live their life no matter according to which doctrine they want, that can be done without insulting the victims of Islam. Um, the right to practice Islam should not mean you glorify certain tenets of Islam that are subjugating not just non-Muslims, but also Muslims who think differently in the Muslim majority countries. Yeah, so it, it, it's very much the idea of, you know, your personal beliefs. I mean, and, and I guess this is really, you know, in, in a way, a very secularist value, the idea that everyone should have the right to have whatever beliefs they want to have, um, but no one should have the right to persecute other people because they have um, different views or they express different views or they criticise um, particular ideas or, or they don't agree with another person's particular version of their religion. Absolutely. And I think I think there's also what we're also seeing is that you mentioned the word secularist and we that that's at the heart of it all is the, the, the understanding is the idea uh, that why uh, the Muslim world, for example, the Muslim majority countries, why they need secularism is because of these exact issues um, that we see over there. And, and the problem with secularism itself is that there is also not the problem with secularism per se, but its definition is that you see so many different versions of it. For example, the French laïcité is, 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 is a more, they like to call it a more active neutrality on religion, but the critics of, of laïcité, they, they, they say it's antagonism towards religion. And the more Anglo-American version of secularism calls for coexistence between different religions, but there's there still a common value or you know equality before law that, that they like to endorse. Then there is also an, an, you know, an Indian version of secularism, which, which as we see owing to the rise of the Hindutva um, um, extremism in India, that has failed, which basically said that different religious communities should be allowed to not just believe, as long as it's about, about belief, I think we can all agree with. What they're saying is that different communities should have the right to dictate what happens within uh, uh, those communities. So for example, you have uh, uh, Hindus, who have the right to, to practice certain Hindu rituals, even if they go against secularism, because that's their understanding of secularism. And the same is true for Muslims. So when you, when you say that, hang on, if it's just Muslims persecuting or denying Muslims certain rights, for example, women's rights, for example, there are still schools, there are still courts across the West, the Sharia courts that deny Muslim women the rights because of what Muslim men say. And they use the Islamic doctrine because what you're basically saying, hang on, this is a Muslim community problem. Let them deal with it. Instead of saying, hang on, the Muslim women should have the same rights as other women in the country. And just because a community, just because um, a religion mandates certain thing, you cannot allow that community to do that. So these different understandings of secularism are also clashing today in, uh, in the world right now. And finally, um, would you have any message for listeners in the UK, whether Muslim, Christian, atheist, or anything else, um, how can we continue to support free speech and open debate, those of us who believe in those values? Um, and 
why is it important to continue doing so and to continue being able to talk about Islam or any other religion freely? I think uh, freedom of speech, perhaps a lot of a lot of uh, you over there, you don't realize uh, its significance because you have it. Uh, and many of us uh, and don't. And again, this is not this is not to paint a picture of victimhood. It's just simply that certain ideas uh, cannot be said because there is absolutely no no uh, freedom of speech, freedom of thought in, in certain parts of the world. So the least you can do, of course, I do understand um, the the Western liberals, uh, you know, propensity, well-meaning, quote-unquote, propensity towards uh, shielding Muslim minorities because they feel that they are marginalized. So then shielding them it somehow sometimes also equates them shielding bad ideas. And not just shielding bad ideas, sometimes it equates with glorifying bad ideas. For example, the Council of Europe, they had this ad recently which not which said hijab means freedom now hijab does not mean freedom for women in afghanistan women women in iran uh, women in so many other um, uh, other muslim majority countries so do not glorify uh, those ideas that you have not only condemned within your own religions and own communities uh, but have overcome as well because we are we have to we are trying to take the same path but when you inadvertently try and, and uh, condemn or relegate critique to as racism, even when it's coming from countries that have these ancient dangerous laws, um, it becomes increasingly difficult. So, for example, when, when uh, Nadia Murad, who's an ISIS survivor, uh, cannot speak at a Canadian school because her expressing her experiences as a slave under ISIS would be deemed Islamophobic, I do not have words to express how much of a monstrosity that is, because it's. I mean, like, you, you, you know, you talk about uh, lived experiences, you talk about identities, you talk about so many things, but when it's, it's still not enough for a Muslim woman to have lived under ISIS, to have won the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize for her experience to to be meaningful of of discussion, because of this imaginary fabricated uh, word that you've created, this is called Islamophobia, in, in a bit ostensibly to, to shield Muslim minorities. And that's unfortunate. Um, and uh, just allow open debate, allow free speech, which should come from both sides. Bad ideas are bad ideas, whether it's coming from the numerical majority or numerical minority. That's all I can say. Kunwa Kuldun Shahid, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.